0: Brothers and sisters, I feel rather burdened by this afternoon's task. Uh, It's been slightly oppressively on my mind all day. What's really required to uh, communicate what has to be communicated today is uh, a bard singing on the wild mountain or a a shaman journeying on his drum. You've just got my leaden tongue and... uh, I can only just indicate a few lines through which you can, I hope, uh, understand more deeply what it is that we're trying to do in the practice. Bhante uh, says that where intellect can go no further, imagination must take over. And uh, me, I'm all intellect, uh, so we'll have to see what happens. because we are journeying, realming, uh, going into the realm of imagination in a sense pure. But um, let's have a little bit of a build-up. We've, in the sequence of the practice, we've tried to develop intense reverence, reverence so strong that we totally commit our lives to uh, uh, achieving... What is, uh, achieving the realization of what the three jewels embody. Um, then we've developed a powerful sense of solidarity with all that lives so that our own efforts are not our efforts, they're efforts with everyone else so that we make some contribution to the sum total of, uh, of uh, the happiness of all living beings. And then we've let go of what Schopenhauer calls the original disposition of the mind. Uh, brilliant phrase. Uh, the mind is pre-programmed, you could say, to see things in terms of subject, uh, which is grasped, an object that is grasped. And uh, we've tried to let go of that uh, through contemplation of Shunyata especially by means of the six-element practice. So we've come to a, uh, an experience, a kind of experience, which is very, very different from our usual one, uh, and in which uh, we're much less attached inly and outly. And uh, then we've tried to, on that basis, change our way of experiencing so that we simply uh, um, allow things to appear without any sort of grasping onto them at all. We allow them to appear appreciatively, you could say. You could even say here that that um, uh, that phrase Vidya that Bhante explores so beautifully in uh, the seminar on the Ratnaguna Guna uh, uh aesthetic appreciation Um uh, the uh, um, appreciative awareness, so that we're aware of, uh, of what appears, but not with a grasping mind, not with an egocentric mind. Now we have to go further because what now happens is that on the basis of this deep, deep reverence, on the basis of uh, this powerful sense of solidarity with all life, which means with all reality, and on the basis of uh, a clear uh, recognition of the the nature of things and a a perception that is based in that, seeing in the Maya way, Manjugosha appears. And uh, so when he appears, it's nothing to do with concepts nothing to do with intellect, nothing to do with logic. Uh, it's all to do with images of all kinds. And the images that we are brought into contact with are images that correctly uh, addressed or cr- correctly are opened up to uh, yield us wisdom. Uh, so that we don't just see wisdom, that we become wisdom. So I want to take a a short digression just to explore why a particular set of images, a particular set of colours, sounds, forms, a drama, so that's what we're we're going into, uh, why that particular assemblage uh, yields us wisdom. Uh, in a sense, you could say that if we have really got the Maya way, if we're seeing in the Maya way, and we're sufficiently open, anything, anything that we address can yield us wisdom. Um, you know, it's a famous story, isn't there, of uh, the Buddha of Mahakashaka, uh, when uh, he holds up the golden flower and... Only Mahakashapa understands. Of course, we don't know what he understood because what he understood is beyond words. It's in the realm that I'm talking about. So, with the correct state of mind, any feature of conditioned reality, any particular assemblage of, uh, of colours, sounds, forms, any narrative, any story, can uh, be a, a gateway to the deepest reality. Um, You know, uh, uh, one thinks of Blake and uh, um, seeing uh, eternity in a... uh, Sorry, uh, uh, the world in a grain of sand and eternity in an hour. That's what he's talking about, is seeing anything in in, uh, such a way, such an open way, uh, with that opened heart that it takes you to, to the ultimate, uh, you know, extrapolating further from what uh, Blake presumably was talking about. So, uh, yes, any particular object that we dwell upon and dwell upon deeply enough can lead us to, uh, to uh, a, a recognition, and not just a recognition, but a merging with uh, a becoming reality itself. It can lead us to, to Buddhahood. Um, any object that we reflect upon in that sort of way focus on in that sort of way with sufficient intensity and uh, sufficient openness and sufficient subtlety and uh, awareness and sufficient discrimination knowing what it isn't and so on all that preparation we've talked about anything can do that Uh, but it doesn't actually happen just doesn't happen. Um, if we did a retreat on a candle flame, we probably could get quite a lot out of it, um, but it probably wouldn't uh, lead us so skillfully, so uh, um, what can I say, sort of in, in, in a in a in a directed way where we want to go. If we we knew how to do it, it could. Probably a skillful guide could bring that about. But uh, why is it that this particular set of uh, forms and so forth yield us wisdom and another set doesn't and another set brings us through the gateway of compassion? Why? I myself put this question to Bante. Many years ago, on the uh, retreat where Sattaloka was ordained, where is he? 1980. What is it? What was the year? 1981. Um, The first uh, men's ordination retreat we had in in Tuscany, in the uh, the old monastery Il Convento di Santa Croce, um, in uh, near Grosseto in, in Tuscany. A really very beautiful place, indeed. It was a a semi-ruined convent, very old monastery, um, which had been very nicely done up by uh, uh, a friend who um, was into opera and ran operas there. Uh, And um, so beautifully done, just minimally. It was still a ruin, but beautifully sort of uh, picked out and uh, Bante used to lead small study groups in the afternoons uh, for different groupings of members of the retreat. And he, uh, to my great delight, put me in the, the, the group with all the young um, New Order members, and uh, which was absolute delight. And they're some of the, the the most wonderful moments of my whole life, sitting in this... Uh, uh, beautiful room, rather crumbling room um, with um, a Baroque fireplace and a huge window behind Bante with this rolling Tuscan landscape uh, behind. And uh, Bante just completely open with us uh, to any question we had, exploring particularly the Sardanas and very, very spontaneous and free absolutely delightful. And uh, so we were exploring different sadhanas. Why hasn't all this somehow come through and that later people don't seem to realise who this man is? Um, but uh, probably our fault. Um, we're not adequate to it. The We are not adequate to it. But uh, absolutely extraordinary. This beautiful sunlight streaming through, particularly in the, in the late evening uh, as the sun was going down, the the, the Italian sun at, at, in in the late evening can be just beautiful, so, and glowing on the walls, which were sort of honey coloured um, uh, stone. Uh, so that the, the evening sun, the setting sun, just glowing on the walls and glowing all around Bante. So I put this question to him: Why is it that? Um, this particular, we choose this particular figure to meditate upon. And in a way, all he said was, well, it just is. <laughs> <laughs> this particular combination does, uh, for reasons that it's difficult to pin down, do that job. So uh, I was in a Greek phase at that point. No, not that. Much. Um, <laughs> down. Down. Um, so I, uh, I said, well, let's say we took the god Apollo. I <laughs> Personally felt there was a sort of quite strong connection between Apollo, the Greek god Apollo, uh, and, uh, and uh, Manjushri. Manjushri is clearly a solar image, and Apollo is the, the sun god. So why couldn't it be that we could take the image of Apollo and uh, meditate upon him and... <laughs> Apollo would, so to speak, slowly um, refine and become more and more subtle and eventually become a Buddha um, that you could meditate on and, and gain uh, um, the Apollo Jnana, as it were. And um, uh, Bantu said that's possible, could happen, just might take a very, very, very long time. Uh, and uh, I suppose that the, the message was that it's not just that the image itself in its particular combination of, of colors and sounds and forms uh, it makes a ready gateway. We'll see a little bit more about this, this in a while. Uh, it makes a ready gateway through which you can enter into uh, the, the, uh, the transcendental nature of, uh, of Manjushri, uh, that particular combination you know for obvious reasons perhaps uh, does that um, but it's also the fact that it's been charged up by countless uh, individuals over the centuries um, seeing that figure again and again and again and understanding it in the context of, uh, of the Dhamma and uh, many of those figures, some of those figures will have had spontaneous visions of of Manjushri. He'll simply have appeared to them uh, perhaps even without them knowing about it. I've actually met somebody for whom uh, um, uh, the figure of uh, of, of, uh, Vajrasattva was already in their minds. Um, They didn't, when they Uh, encountered it when I described it uh, in a a course I was doing, they told me "Ah, that's what I've been uh, imagining this figure has been there as a presence in my mind so from that side you could say that the the image and especially the image in in this framework that we're uh, approaching during these days has been contemplated by thousands and thousands of Buddhists down the ages. The figure of Manjushri has not merely been something that people have painted with their imaginations but has appeared to people uh, and uh, um, directly taught them, directly communicated with them. So the figure has taken on, if you can say that, uh, an independent life because it already had an independent life but that figure has connected with the life of humanity and uh, uh, that uh, because it's been um, reflected upon, revered uh, and worshipped um, for maybe 2,000 years. We don't know when the figure really first came into the, the Buddhist world, but it's very, very early in the early, what we would now call the Mahayana phase or They didn't think of themselves as Mahayanists, but it came into into life very, very early on. So it's got all that attention down the ages. And uh, uh, so we're sort of tapping into that stream of attention, which uh, supports us in our effort to connect with Manjushri. Of course, it also aids Manjushri's efforts to connect with us. Um, So, uh, yes, the the energy that people have put into uh, uh, contemplating Manjushri uh, gives that figure, this figure, a special channel uh, through to, to wisdom. When we approach it in the right way on the basis of the, the three stages we've already outlined. There's something quite deeply significant about this and that then of course makes us much more aware of uh, where we got it from. Uh, we got it from Bante. Bante got it from Jamyankensha Rinpoche. Jamyankensha Rinpoche got it from the, that little team of uh, Rime Lamas who swapped initiations and unified uh, uh, many of the traditions, the lineages of um, that the Tibetans had inherited from India and presumably behind them are Indian gurus meditating in uh, the, the, the jungle, in the caves at Nalanda, at Vikramashila at Nagarjuna Konda Bhaja um, and uh, other caves we're familiar with, Ajanta uh, Manjushri is there um, uh, it, 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 and it's come to it's come to us from a living tradition of people who experienced, actually saw a new Manjushri for themselves, and uh, who communicated that to others. Communicated that to others. And it's come to us. So uh, why part of why the figure works as a as a a channel. Yes is because of the extent to which it has been uh, contemplated, reflected upon, worshipped, loved uh, over the the millennia. Um, There's a very interesting passage in uh, Paradise Lost, which I'm reading at the moment just to try and bring the imagination to life from within my culture. Um, A little bit more, reading it again, worth reading again and again. But uh, there's one theme that um, the, 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 uh, all the, the devils, the, the demons who fall, the fallen angels who fall with Lucifer, um, later become the gods who are worshipped in the human realm, if you see what I mean. And um, you know, so um, uh, Moloch and Belial and all the gods, just long, long lists of them in Milton, resonantly rolled out um, they, they they become the the gods who are, are worshipped, but in Paradise Regained, you, we, we discover that they're getting a bit restive because people are stopping worshipping them, and when they're not worshipped, the, the text says uh, quite literally, they lose their life. Um, so a little hint as, of of what I'm talking about, that because Manjushri has been given life by yogis. And uh, sages, and by uh, um, individuals who've realized their truth, uh, realized their, their, um, their reality, um, it's come to us as a, uh, a powerful route through which we can approach wisdom. You remember Bante talking about Jamyam Kense Rinpoche when he was giving the initiation. We were read that the other night. And uh, um, uh, I, I, I remember when Bante talked about it in Tuscany, I think it was. He talked about it as if the the image, the, uh, the figures were reflected in his face, that the sort of joy and, and, and happiness, delight on his face, and that he was greeting them as if they were old friends with whom he was deeply familiar. Um, so, we've inherited uh, Manjushri, even just as our grand uh, uh, teacher as it were um, great guru is it? What, what do you call it, grand guru the guru before our guru from whom we get it um, we have somebody who, who uh, uh, palpably uh, experienced Manjushri as a living presence so that all uh, uh, charges up the image and makes it much easier for us to connect with its real and deeper meaning. Um, but obviously the particular images uh, the particular assemblage of images and colours and sounds and so forth aid that connection um, Dwight Bantay has a slightly critical approach to uh, some of the um, practices that people sometimes want to do the animal headed and so forth he, he thinks a problem with that, uh, which we won't go into now, but he, he's saying that the um, the connection will then be, as it were, complex. Perhaps they can be, but perhaps they can't. Anyway, that's just a hint there. There's much more discussion another time. But um, yeah, the images themselves, the content of this complex of images, uh, assists us in our uh, uh, our attempt to connect with wisdom. Um, hmm. Before I go there, I want to go somewhere else as well. Uh, a little bit more about... No, I'll go, I'll go to that later. You see what I mean? Um... um, <laughs> um I just sitting just, just there, there's all these connections coming in my mind. Now I'm going to try and assemble them all and then try to deliver them to you in a way that doesn't flatten you against the wall. Um, that doesn't... I feel my face going red as I... Anyway. <laughs> uh, sword, sword. Um, um, uh, I, I have some sense that the sword has a, a history... Maybe going back to this, is, i never heard anybody speak about this, but it's just a little hint. Uh, you often get, even in, uh, in, in Indian images, you get it especially in Theravada countries now, images of, of uh, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha to uh, be, sitting uh, either in cross-legged posture or in royal ease posture uh, with his top knot in his left hand and a sword in his right hand held over his head like this, he's just about to cut off uh, the, uh, the top knot. Um, you know, as an act of going forth. Then take off all his princely jewels and so forth, because that's all in the background, uh, and uh, put on the, 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 the orange robe. Uh, so um, the sword has an immediate connection with cutting off cutting off, uh, uh, well you could say, the world, if we take that as uh, an ancestry to the image. But uh, um, I think it's got a more immediate and um, transcultural reference, although of course it's less easily approached today. Um, I've probably got a more vivid connection with swords than most of you. Um, my father was a naval officer and, and uh, he had a sword. And uh, I remember it was kept in his cupboard with another sword, which was a, a, a Japanese naval officer's sword that had been surrendered to him. Uh, he took the surrender of Hong Kong. And um, so these two uh, swords uh, were sitting at the back of his cupboard. when nobody was looking, I'd sneak up and have a look at these swords and take them out, particularly the Japanese one because the, the, uh, uh, the British one has, has a point. It's a rapier, not a saber. But the Japanese one is you know, the full cutting edge. And um, it's odd. The, the, the feeling I used to get was not one of dominance or of um, power in that sense. It was a sort of fineness, uh, particularly the Japanese one. Its weight, even though it was a common or garden uh, Japanese officer's sword, uh, the the, the, the weight of it, the heft of it, uh, was very, very delicate. And um, uh, the the sense was of something very precise and fine. So for me, that's the association of the sword. I also did. uh, for a little while, I learnt uh, fencing. I, I did foil, um, and it's it, it's it's not uh, a brutal art at all. It's a very fine one. It's all about the uh, you know finding the gap in the in the uh, adversary's uh, guard and, and and getting through it, which demands a tremendous uh, fineness of, of attention and great control over the sword. So for me, those are the sort of associations I immediately get. Uh, and then with, uh, of course, the, the action of cutting is, um, in a sense, destructive. And, uh, of course, in the, in, the, in the context of ordinary life, destruction is what every Buddhist, in a sense, wants to get away, with, get away from. I'll get away with, get away from, <laughs> um, <laughs> slip of the tongue. <laughs> um, but um, uh, destruction is necessary. Uh, it, it's an essential part of, of spiritual life. Uh, we have to destroy um, ignorance. Uh, and uh, a certain warrior-like quality is necessary to anyone's spiritual life. I think sometimes uh, people take Buddhism uh, to be uh, pacifist in the wrong sense. Um, The Buddha, in fact, said, didn't he, we are warriors, monks. Um, What he meant was what he said, we're at war with greed, hatred, and delusion. So that's what the sword is about, is that destructive energy, very finely, precisely controlled to destroy what needs to be destroyed, what must be destroyed if wisdom is to flourish. So uh, uh, that's a powerful element in the the image. If you take in the sword, dwell upon the sword, all these associations will be there in your mind. You may have negative associations, of course. Those will require some unpicking. Um, and you'll you need to sort of uh, uh, feel your way into the, the the deeper meaning of the sword as an image in in uh, Manjushri's hand. Look, look look at the way he's holding it. It's not a brutal you know chopper, uh, maybe appropriate at times. It's a it's delicately held, uh, just three fingers wielding it. Um, the book. Uh, of course, in our practice, we hold the book on. Uh, to the heart, which has its own significance. If the book is held to the heart, well it, it, it feels different, doesn't it? Of course, you can, he's holding a lotus which has the book on it, which comes to the same thing. But when you're holding the book to your heart is uh, very strong. I used to do that sometimes. Uh, um, I now inherited my father's sword and um, sometimes I, I used to Take Pragna Paramita text and uh, sit and uh, just sort of identify in a, in a physical way with Manjushri as much as I could. And uh, I noticed that the the book resting on my hand, uh, in my hand had reverence for it, if you see what I mean. And after a time I used to put a, a, a cloth underneath it as if I shouldn't hold it directly. Uh, because this was sacred. Um, and the book is not, of course, any particular book. It's said in the, in the, in the, uh, the Sardana, in the Stuti, to be uh, uh, the volume of Pragnya Paramita. But you mustn't think it's this volume or that volume. It's the Astasaharika or that one or that one. It's the principle of Pragnya Books, just think of books. Uh, the way books... The fact of books speaks to you. Are we going to lose this? I doubt it um, with the um, you know, digital books. But uh, the physical book, uh, which has been part of human heritage for thousands of years I don't know when the first books are known, but maybe 3,000 years um, the book uh, as a, a source of knowledge, as a, a gateway to. Uh, Uh, what we do not know as uh, ending our ignorance uh, enlightening us Um, just the fact of the book the physical object of the book which condenses in in a small compass so much wisdom Um, so when we we see the book we need to allow those resonances to play upon us Um, very immediately, very directly. And uh, they'll do it all the more if you've played with books, if you see what I mean, if you've uh, explored your relationship to books. I'm not going to get time to go into every image, so I'm just sort of indicating a line of of inquiry or a line of approach. Um, He's a prince. Of course, he's a prince because he's a bodhisattva. And uh, princes are considered uh, the Rajkumaras, the um, the crown princes. They will become the king, the Raja, uh, when they gain enlightenment. So uh, the the senses of um, something very fresh, very young, very intensely beautiful, said to be in the in the prime of 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 life at sixteen. Which I think for a man, probably is the, the time of greatest sort of potency and uh, even beauty. Um, and so we're, we're seeing him as uh, through, the, through the image of a young prince. And uh, that itself has a, a, a powerful um, communication, a powerful message to us. Oh my goodness, there's so much in it. All the jewels, the the silks, all of it, every single item, uh, if you dwell upon it, reveals some meaning. Uh, I used to do that. Uh, I haven't been doing that so much recently. I just focus at one time in one session, maybe even for some, some weeks, on a particular aspect. Sometimes I just spend ages on the sword and the the way in which Manjushri holds the sword and trying to get a kinesthetic resonance with the way in which he he holds the sword and the same with the book and the way in which the flames lick along the surface of the the sword. Uh, I don't don't want to say what that means uh, because it must be felt, not not parsed, not um, analysed it's uh, not not sort of like one of those dream books that tells you if you dream this it means that it's it's not like that it's multivalent points in all sorts of different directions but you need to interrogate it not interrogate it with the brain but interrogate it with the imagination open the imagination up to it so that it speaks uh it's a color um this uh, mysterious uh, colour—it's about the nearest I've got to it in my wardrobe. Um, um, not quite right, but getting there. Um, but uh, it's—it's it, um, it's clearly uh, connected with uh, the the the, the Manjushri's, um, position as a, a solar image. So. Uh, this is my um, connotation. Uh, I don't know whether it's what's intended. How can we know? What is intended? I don't think anything is intended. Um, just is. But you know, sometimes when the sun rises in the morning, you get the uh, maybe half the orb of the sun, maybe a little bit more if it's a bit. Um, the air is a bit thick, and it's often, to my mind, Manjushri coloured. It's a, a beautiful fiery orange, which has not attained the full blazing, um, unseeable uh, radiance of of the the sun at midday. And it's of course not the the setting sun, which is more to do with Amitabha. But it's this uh, uh, intense, fresh, uh, glowing, fiery orange. Um, So that's what I think the the background is or well, that's the association it has for me. Um, very very difficult to describe, very difficult to capture. And of course that connects then with the idea of Manjushri as a, as a young prince. He's just coming into his power. he's just dawning with all that freshness and energy, um, all that uh, vitality to, to save living beings, to, to liberate living beings. In a way, you could say, as, as Bante said, of, uh, of Tara, he was asked, what is Tara? And he said that Tara is the spiritual equivalent of green. Well, Manjushri is the spiritual equivalent of that fiery orange-yellow. And um, this begins to take us a little bit closer to the territory in which we're working. Swords and and and, um, and books are cultural images, which are, as it were, to do with developed human society. But with the the colours and some of the raw imagery, I think even with the sounds of the mantra, and and then with the the, the most prominent uh, narrative images in, in in the sadhana, were taken right back to the roots of human experience. Um, there are two primary um, um, images of this kind with, with their narratives connected to them, uh, which I, I, you cannot avoid their power, but if you can open up to their power even more, they will speak more strongly to you. Um, the first is the image of Uh, the sun as destroying darkness Um, as a very powerful basic human experience which oddly we have less nowadays because uh, uh, we we, we have such a lot of uh, artificial light and uh, I must say it's one of the things I love about living in the countryside where actually uh, where I live uh, you can get almost total darkness. Uh, you know, seeing the Milky Way, which I haven't seen for years anywhere else um, from my childhood, I remember it. But the uh, the Milky Way just streaking across the sky. But uh, when there's no moon, um, I, I, uh, y- y- you get a vivid sense of the primitive power of darkness. Um, and I, uh, we, we make a principle never to turn on the outside lights unless we really need them. Um, whereas our neighbors all turn on their outside lights as soon as it gets dark and leave them on all night. I don't know why. I must confuse the hours. Um, but uh, the, the, the direct experience of darkness, which of course is, uh, uh, it, it's literally ignorance, isn't it? because you don't know what's there. Uh, you don't know what's lurking around the corner. You don't know what's uh, um, what's even under your feet. You don't know if it's really dark, inky darkness, which sometimes we get up there. Um, just a few lights twinkling in the distance. they don't shed any radiance immediately. Um, and you get that up at... Kujiloki you, you must get it to Kashavana, Eko Dharma, I'm sure you get it there. this uh, absolute darkness. And uh, it's interesting how much people fear it and how uh, much they want to get that artificial light on, and how much they resist of the darkness. But if you don't experience the darkness, in a sense, you can't experience the wonder of light you can't experience uh, that primitive uh, joy and relief when the sun comes up. Um, we of northern climes and the, the Swedes, wherever they are, uh, will experience this more strongly than we do in, in the south of England. Even in Scotland, you experience it more strongly. This, uh, this fading of the light um, so that for, for a season... Um, even for a few days, there's virtually no light, um, or just a faint glow on the horizon. Uh, and uh, the, the, the primitive dread that the light will not come back, which governed um, uh, much of um, uh, certainly Celtic religion, is that to trying to get the sun to come back, welcoming the sun when it did come back. Um, Uh, praying to sun when it was going to come back. Uh, Very strong uh, um, um, uh, reverence for the sun because it represents seeing. It represents knowing what's there. It represents, in a sense, wisdom. It represents knowledge in contrast to the darkness of ignorance. So this is in the background of the sadhana. And the more powerfully you can experience that, uh, the more powerfully the sadhana will speak to you. Shri is like a cloud-free sun, uh, um, purifying like a cloud-free sun. The two obscurations are very clear. He drives away the darkness of the obscurations, Klesha and Yehavarana. He drives them away so that we can really see not just what's under our feet, but the real nature of everything so that we dwell in the light. So a very, very powerful use of a a, a deep, primitive human experience which is uh, harnessed uh, 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 to our our use um, so that we can gain the real light, if you like. Um, I suddenly thought of um, uh, the the great British uh, painter um, uh, J.W.N. Turner who uh, is said not completely verified but he said that on his deathbed his last words were God is light and uh, I I believe I've caught a reference somewhere but I can't Find it, but he he did talk about Apollo and and uh, uh, and uh, the sun as the the source of his paintings, as it were. Uh, and he's called the painter of light, isn't he? That his paintings are all about light. Um, but uh, that same uh, god is light really resonates, and uh, you can see that this is what's evoked in the in the, Sardin, the, the uh The powerful, deep, primitive, but um, lofty at the same time, image of the sun chasing away darkness, Uh, which speaks so much more powerfully than when we say wisdom and it chases ignorance or destroys ignorance. Much more powerful when the sun emerges and uh, uh, brings, brings the daylight uh, again and again, through the sadhana it comes out as as uh, brighter than the, uh, than the the light that makes it day uh, the um, uh, the ray coming into your heart is is brighter than the sun, and the the little uh, ball of of light to which Manjushri condenses is like a a tiny sun but it 's uh I, I always think like 10,000 suns, suns to the nth power. So, solar symbols are there all the way through. And it's quite important, I think, to explore that a little bit outside the context of the sadhana, so that the images, which will speak anyway, because there's a, quite a strong poetic mood to the, to, the, to, to the practice. And poetry requires one to respond with the imagination, not with the intellect. I mention one other narrative theme that's very important, which is uh, the theme of uh, imprisonment and liberation. Um, uh, this uh, comes up most powerfully in the um, in the image of uh, um, prisoned, imprisoned in the uh, uh, in the prison yeah, of temporal existence, psychic existence, and. Uh, the iron fetters of karma. Um, so the image is of being fettered, being uh, confined, being uh, um, uh, not free, constrained, even physically constrained. Uh, and of course, uh, it's covered in the prison of temporal existence. Uh, there is a psychic, existence anyway, I can never get it out loud. But uh, it's covered. So there's an the image of darkness combined with the image of of, uh, imprisonment, enslavement. And uh, that's a powerful background motif, uh, that the sense that Manjushri is uh, liberating one, and liberation itself, which we now use somewhat glibly, if you see what I mean, for enlightenment. um, Well, speak for yourself, Swooji you know, we can use it rather glibly, it trips off the tongue, liberation. Uh, But in the background of it it is that experience of enslavement, of entrapment, not being free, confined, uh, and suddenly you're free. Uh, So if you know that distinction, uh, you can see the full power of the image. Very much reminded of... um, Dr. Ambedkar and his uh, conversion to Buddhism uh, famously he said uh, uh, on the day following his, his conversion on the 15th of October 56, 1956 he was asked how he felt um, and he said I feel I have been released from hell and uh, uh, for him for him uh, the Dhamma was, of course, a liberator from his social oppression, but it went much, much further than that. For him, the liberation from social oppression uh, represented, uh, if you like, uh, uh, um, uh, existential liberation, liberation from uh, all the oppressions and sufferings of, of human existence. So even when, when you really understand liberation in the most literal sense, when the key is turned and you're let out, you have for a brief moment a flash of what is ultimate in liberation before, of course, your own habits of enslavement entrap you again. But even in any experience of liberation is a little glimpse of ultimate liberation even in the experience of the sun dawning, is a little glimpse of the ultimate light that chases away the darkness of ignorance. So if we can, if we can experience these um, motifs uh, directly enough uh, with as little intellectual um, uh, intervention as possible, they can speak very very powerfully to us even outside the context of a practice like this but when impacted condensed into this practice and uh, combined in such a rich and extremely skillful way it's a very subtle practice which is working on us in all sorts of ways uh, it, it, it's uh, even more powerful so much more I could say I could explore other images but In a way, what I'm mostly trying to do is to illustrate the mood which one is viewing the images with. One is trying to let the images speak to one uh, and speak to one without interpretation. The images have their own power. That color has its own message. And if we let it speak to us, Uh, we will begin to get some glimpse of who Manjushri really is. It's a problem, of course. The problem is that this kind of imaginative connection can rest at the merely refined aesthetic level. Uh, It can simply be uh, a a kind of enjoyment and a a, a dabbling in delighting in the, the, the images and even their power, but not actually help us to break through. Uh, I remember Bante making this point in, in, in that same uh, retreat at Tuscany. Um, he said that even though you need to approach these images uh, as your gateways to uh, the, 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 the reality that lies behind them, you should not think that the image is the reality. Uh, so he said, uh, uh, he quoted uh, the famous English uh, uh, um, critic uh, John Ruskin, who, uh, ag- against yeah. the, uh, the, the universal opinion of, of, of uh, um, history, argued that the Apollo Belvedere um, which is a, a, a really rather magnificent Roman copy of a, a Greek bronze, which is you can still see in the Vatican museums. Um, uh, he um, is Apollo just having loosed an arrow. Very beautiful. A little too beautiful, but maybe that was uh, Ruskin's point. But Ruskin didn't like it. And the main reason he didn't like it was that he thought that it uh, um, it obscured who Apollo was. It made him too earthly. Uh, it did not... Uh, it seduced you into thinking that you'd actually seen Apollo. Whereas, you know, some of those wonderful uh, um, uh, pre-classical sculptures, what do they call them, the Core, particularly, um they have a chthonic power. Uh, they're not. A, they're, there's representation in them, but it's not an absolute rep- re- representation. So that they, they speak of something that is more than you can see, whereas, uh, of course, the classical and the, particularly the Hellenistics um, tended to uh, to to explore the human realm for the in depicting the gods to a point that. Certainly, Ruskin, and it's an arguable point, thought betrayed their sacred origin. So, uh, do you see what I mean? Bante's saying that even though you 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 need to glory in and and rejoice in and uh, delight in and be powerfully emotionally, aesthetically affected uh, by the images that are presented to you, you must recognise. Uh, that there's something the images are communicating to you that is, in this sense, more than the images. Not of course, that there's something else there, but that through the images you're arriving at something more. This of course is in the in the, the, the um, theology, no the the methodology of the uh, of the practice the Jnana Sattva. Uh, The Samaya Sattva, you could say, is the the, the particular presentation of form. But the Jnana Sattva is that which the form can never fully contain or that is not defined by the form. It can express itself through the form. It can express itself fully through the form, but it's not confined by the form. And it's not uh, uh, contained by the form, um, so uh, there comes a point in the practice, and of course symbolically in the another motif of the of the sadhana that we could easily spend time exploring is the theme of consecration, um, where uh, the the uh, the jnna amrita enters the body of uh, Manjukosha, and symbolically at that point. Uh, he becomes the Jnana Sattva because the obscuration of your vision goes, so you see him as he really is. What, what I think that really, the, the, the way in which I find that, you know, just to the extent that I have any grasp of it at all, presents itself to me, is that uh, I get at times a powerful sense of a presence, of a consciousness uh, of a consciousness that is vast uh, a consciousness that is not like my consciousness but at the same time is not in a certain sense different from my consciousness um, a consciousness that in a way even contains my consciousness at times and uh, in the, the dynamics of the sadhana one tries actually to Uh, immerse oneself uh, in that consciousness. One takes that consciousness into oneself. But uh, through the image, uh, uh, one connects with an awareness, a vast awareness, a vast jnana, which is not abstract at all. It's not impersonal at all. It's living. It's real. It's as real For me, as you are, or I am to you. It's a real presence um, which uh, uh, is on a level that is way beyond one's own, but which through the sadhana one comes into relationship with. One may even feel, one inevitably will feel, that that vast awareness encompasses oneself. It's, as it were, aware of one. Um, of course, as the sadhana goes on, as you progress through it, ideally what happens is that the distinction between I and uh, Manjushri sort of disappears, and they're two completely interinvolved. involved uh, was saying the other day that sometimes it's not just that um, you're looking at Manjushri, sometimes it's as if you're looking at you through Manjushri's eyes. If the practice sort of progresses in, a, in that sort of way, where you uh, are in contact with a living consciousness that is vaster than your own, uh, that is infinite in extent, uh, that is without blemish, and so on. Uh, and uh, that, in my understanding, is the Jnana Sattva, which then uh, becomes uh, embodied. In the figure, uh, and which, if you are able to um, connect it with the figure closely enough, when you come to see that figure, then you will experience that that uh, awareness. You'll experience that presence. It'll be vividly alive for you, and you can enter into a deeper, deeper, and deeper connection with it. Because it, in the end, that the power of that consciousness. Of that awareness is to dissolve your uh, isolated, self-based consciousness. That's its power, and uh, that is uh, where uh, the, the, the practice takes us to, uh, through our opening up fully to the images in the right frame of mind, through doing all the preliminaries, uh, opening up to those images, allowing them to speak to us and recognizing that as images, they do not tell us the whole story. So looking, looking for them as meaningful, but recognizing that the meaning is something more than them, which we are trying to open ourselves up to. And when that happens, the Jnana Sattva arises. So I've survived. I hope I've communicated something of what I wanted to say. Uh, Tomorrow is even more daunting. Thank you.